This evening we turn in God's inspired word to the book of Acts, an account of the history of the early New Testament church. We read Acts chapter 6, Acts 6, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that said in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The text to which I call your attention this evening is Acts 6 verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's noteworthy by way of introduction that the context of this verse that we consider this evening draws out the importance and the power of the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the word and prayer that accompanies that preaching is so important that the apostles had to maintain 
preaching and prayer as the primary focus of their ministries. They had to do that even when that priority compelled them to neglect certain other aspects, even important aspects of the ministry to the saints. And so we find in the opening verses of this chapter that the institution of the office of deacon occurred because of the neglect of the widows and their material needs. That neglect could not continue. Scripture always holds forth the care that God has for his needy people and especially for his widows. From time to time, from the time of the Old Testament law, care had to be given to the poor and widows. And the same was the case here. The same truth had to be maintained, but not at the expense of the preaching of the gospel. And so we are given the institution of the office of deacon. God provides additional help so that proper care can be given those in need while their greatest spiritual needs are yet addressed by the faithful preaching of the gospel. In addition, this rather brief chapter in the book of Acts demonstrates the power of the word preached. The word preached is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. As we read in Romans 1 verse 16, it is the power of that word preached that compels us to continue to preach that word and to attend to that preaching even if the whole world should be against us. It is the preaching of the whole counsel of God to which we are called and in which we see the joy of God's work by his Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who are his. And that's demonstrated in the text that we consider this evening, Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God increased. That is literally brought increase or caused increase as seen by this. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. It is especially to the power of that preaching as comes to expression in that, in that last clause to which I call your attention this evening. And as we look at how the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of those priests that are mentioned, I call your attention to their obedience of the faith. Obedience to the faith. Let's not forget what is evident in this entire verse is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit of the, exalt, the risen and exalted Lord Christ, which work he still carries on in the church today, even as comes to expression in the lives of Kylie and James as they have made their confession of faith this evening. That confession also includes obedience to the faith. 
Let's give our attention then to that theme, obedience to the faith. The text reveals a radical change, an urgent necessity, and a blessed privilege. So those are our three main points. A radical change, an urgent necessity, and a blessed privilege. Unfolded in the text before us is the radical change worked in the lives of certain priests by the Holy Spirit through the Word. And the fact that the power of the gospel is seen in its effects upon the priests referred to here is an amazing revelation. After all, the priests were among those most hostile opponents of the Christ. We most often see the effects of the gospel among those who have been born and brought up in the church, who, like Timothy, were instructed from earliest childhood, as have been most of you. Well, these priests had grown up in the Old Testament church. And the Bible tells us they were prominent office bearers in the Old Testament church. The priests were those ordained by God to carry out that Old Testament worship services in the temple, to receive offerings from the people, and to carry out the sacrifices. You children know that those sacrifices in the Old Testament all pointed to Christ, didn't they? Everything pointed to Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ, who by his own sacrifice on the cross would save his people from their sins. And the priests, we would say, were the closest to that gospel But we find in many places in the Old Testament that those priests were often unfaithful in executing their office. Even after the return from the captivity in Babylon, and remember it was only a remnant who returned, but even then many of the priests were found by Ezra and Nehemiah to be leading God's people astray. So that we find in Ezra 9 that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Even the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Some came to repentance after Ezra confronted them with their sins and called them to repentance. But Nehemiah also found rebellion among the priests when he came later and even calls attention to some of those unfaithful priests in the last verses of Nehemiah chapter 12, saying, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood 
and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Now we come to Jesus' day and the early New Testament period and we find that that tendency toward departure among the priests in the Old Testament had only continued, if not increased. Not only were there many priests, very worldly, a disgrace to the office that they held, but they were some of Jesus' most bitter enemies and those who opposed him most strongly. They viewed him as a threat to their office rather than rejoicing in him as the fulfillment of their office. He hadn't received the office in the way they had, but he taught them with authority that would seem to belittle their own authority. The priests were among those who had conspired with the Pharisees to crucify Jesus. And yet this text tells us that the effect of the preaching of the gospel after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was such that not only did a great number of disciples multiply in Jerusalem, but that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Among those who were the most bitter opponents of Jesus the Christ, a great company were now obedient to the faith. Isn't it interesting that even while Satan conspires relentlessly against the preaching of the gospel, and does everything in his power to stop that preaching in its tracks, yet that gospel continues to sound forth as the power of God unto salvation, wherever he is pleased to send that gospel. We have experienced no little turmoil as churches in the past few years. And we're likely to continue to face such turmoil of different sorts. So you young people who have confessed your faith tonight have lived in the face of that in these formative years of your life. And we are under the full-fledged assault of Satan and his hosts. We have seen ministers depart, some falling into grievous sins. All event, all these events serving Satan's efforts to disrupt the faithful preaching of the gospel, destroying trust toward those who proclaim God's word and serving to call God's truth into question. Because if Satan can portray the churches as a gathering of proud hypocrites who cannot be trusted, why should anyone hear what is preached here? But the gospel continues to sound forth. And the power of that gospel is seen in the lives, seen by the fruits of the Spirit in the lives of yours and mine 
but in the lives of some, such as these priests, who firmly resisted Christ in the past. What we see in these priests who were obedient to the faith as they were brought under the power of the gospel is that to become a Christian is not something superficial. It is a profound and radical change that comes only by being born again, united by faith to that living Savior who is Christ, Jesus the righteous. And when the text points to that profound change, it is pointing to the fact that this change is brought to expression in the lives of those who are made one with Christ. Our union with Christ comes by faith. Faith has to its essence is that bond that unites us to Christ, demonstrated by the figure of the living graft of the branches into the vine, John chapter 15. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. God himself, by his Holy Spirit, establishes that living bond of faith, so uniting us to Christ and uniting to Christ all those whom he has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. But what then happens? The apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. A new creature. That's how you and I view ourselves when we confess our faith. We look at what God has done with our lives, and it's amazing. But the text would have us understand that this newness of life manifests itself. The life of Christ that is ours comes to expression. And it's important that we see that in this text. Confession of faith is not merely a matter of words. The text speaks of being obedient to the faith. Obedience is a term that many do not want today. They push it away. After all, obedience speaks of subjection. Obedience would seem on the surface to speak of being restricted by the law, by rules. Obedience speaks of humbling ourselves before one who is higher who has authority over all. So apart from our natural resistance to the idea of obedience because of the pride of our sinful flesh, there are those who would make a spiritual, a theological problem out of this concept of obedience. They would say that if obedience speaks 
of being restricted by laws, then it's contrary to the gospel, which speaks of freedom from the curse of the law. So we must only hear the gospel and have nothing to do with any calls to obedience. They might even confuse things further in the minds of some by insisting that calls to obedience put all the emphasis on man, what man must do. Don't let them confuse you. Obedience is part and parcel of the Christian life. In Acts 6 verse 7, it is held before us not only as an example of the Spirit's work in the church soon after Pentecost, but as a cause for rejoicing in the power of the gospel. The faith established in the heart by the Holy Spirit, that faith by which we are united to Christ, is also called to our consciousness by the gospel. As the Spirit applies that word to our hearts, so that we believe, we trust, that our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. But that same faith that is brought to activity in our minds through the Spirit's work comes to expression by obedience to the faith. That obedience to the faith is an urgent necessity. Now, I've called your attention to the concept faith, both as to its essence and its activity. A work of the Holy Spirit, no matter from which perspective you view it. But the text speaks of obedience to the faith. And you sense, therefore, that there is yet another way the Bible uses that term faith. Here, Preceded by the definite article, the, faith is used to refer to the content of faith. That is, that which is believed. It's used in the same sense that Jude speaks of it in his epistle, verse 3, where he exhorts us that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith is the whole counsel of God, the good news, the focal point of which is Jesus Christ our Savior. Now to trust in Jesus is not just some nebulous feeling. To make confession of faith is not to say, I feel like I'm a Christian. Matthew 13 sets before us the parable of the seed and the sower, where Jesus speaks of some of that seed falling on stony soil. And he explains that the same is he that heareth the word, and anon immediately with joy receiveth it. That is, he's moved emotionally, He gets good feelings from the gospel he hears preached, but that's the extent of it. And therefore, it doesn't last. 
And what Jesus says, when the word comes under attack, or persecution face follows those who are true believers, this one who only felt he was a Christian turns and runs the other way. He's offended that he should have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Christianity is not something so superficial as to only affect the emotions. God's word addresses the mind. God's word addresses the mind so that faith lays hold of Christ, who is the word, the one who reveals to us the God of our salvation. Faith, therefore, lays hold of an unchangeable standard, the word of God revealed in Holy Scripture, or that which is spoken of as the faith. That said, however, it must also be understood that Christianity is not just some intellectual assent to what the Bible teaches. I have consistently emphasized this in the pulpit and in catechism classes. One might have a deep interest in theology, in how consistent is the teaching of Scripture to to human reason. My late seminary professor, Homer Huxema, told us once of a doctor that would stop in and visit his dad, Reverend Herman Huxema, in the parsonage of Old First Church. That doctor, obviously an intelligent man, was deeply interested in theology, what the Bible taught, and he would stop to engage in conversation with Reverend Huxema. But Reverend Hooksma soon sensed that the man's pursuit was merely intellectual. He knew not Christ with the knowledge of his saving faith. And when Reverend Hooksma confronted him with the call of the gospel, that was the end of the visits. That's not what he came for. This is life eternal, said Jesus in John 17, verse 3, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Notice, not merely know about thee, but that they might know thee. That's the knowledge of the mind, to be sure, but the knowledge of relationship, knowing that we are one with him by a living faith. But that means that to trust Jesus, to trust in Jesus is to acknowledge as truth all that he has revealed to us and to subject ourselves to him as he has revealed himself to us. There is no claim to Jesus as Savior while rejecting him as Lord. 
There is no claim to faith without the obedience that follows as a necessary fruit of that faith. The necessity of obedience is a, is a matter of emphasis in Scripture. The Bible doesn't stop with using the term believe. In, the, in that glorious doctrinal epistle of Romans, in which is set forth that wonderful truth of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, Paul begins in chapter 1 by calling attention to his apostleship and pointing out that his calling in proclaiming the gospel was for obedience to the faith among all nations. Later in chapter 6, verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Later in Romans 10, verse 16, he writes, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, Who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now did you notice that? Faith comes first. Faith is worked by the Spirit through the word preached, but the obedience to the gospel necessarily follows as the evidence of true faith. Why is obedience necessary? Well, because the essence of sin, your sin and mine, is disobedience. It's rebellion against God. It's the rejection of his word. Salvation is deliverance from sin and its consequences, deliverance from our disobedience and rebellion against God. That work of the Holy Spirit Uniting us to Christ, our head, is a work which also gives us the life of Christ. It's a work which brings to fruition the very purpose of God in saving us. Namely, that we might live to his glory and praise. Or to use the language of Ephesians 1 verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before him. But that being the case, we must understand that obedience to the faith is clearly not just a change of outward behavior. It's not just a change of clothes or of appearance. It is quite possible, apart from faith, for a person to change his or her behavior to turn from sexual sin or from addiction to alcohol or drugs, to mention a couple examples. It's possible, apart from faith, that a husband and wife learn to behave better toward each other. Counselors are kept busy showing people 
how to adjust and change their outward behavior. But obedience to the faith begins with a spiritual change of the heart, of the mind. And it's the fruit of faith, the fruit of Christ's life in us, the fruit of our organic union with that living Lord and Savior. And for that reason, confession of faith involves not just the confession that I belong to Jesus, but that I'm committed to obedience to the faith, to living out my confession to the glory of him who saved me. And when asked, Kylie and James each answered yes to that question tonight. But that has to be the commitment of every one of us who confess to belong to Jesus. That has to be evident in our lives. As it was in the lives of that great company of priests, the converted priests of which we read in Acts 6, verse 7. So what does that obedience involve? Obedience to the faith begins by seeing what the Bible teaches concerning ourselves, our sinfulness. You see, the priests, along with their companions, the the scribes and Pharisees, had resisted Jesus because his preaching exposed sin for the offense that it is against God. Moreover, he had done so with application to them. And they were offended. They had this very self-righteous attitude. They were consumed by the pride of their self-righteousness because for all their laws and precepts, they had a very superficial view of sin. That's why they could compare themselves to others and see how bad those others were while deceiving themselves into thinking that they were righteous. Finger-pointing came natural to them. To acknowledge that they themselves had rebelled against God, against the Holy One of Israel, well, that didn't enter their minds. Oh, perhaps some admitted that they occasionally slipped up, didn't quite do right. They might, they might go along with that. But the wrong that they had done didn't begin to compare with the wrong those others had done. You realize, I trust, that we have to guard ourselves against that same self-righteous attitude. 
We can easily point the finger even at our wives, our husbands, those in authority over us. Some are very quick to find fault and to rush to judgment and yet resist the word of God with application to themselves. Some make their judgment and withdraw themselves as if those to whom they point the finger have some contagious plague, just as did the scribes and Pharisees, withdrew from the publicans and sinners, and were quite irritated to see Jesus drawn to those publicans and sinners. But when Jesus said in Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick, But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And these priests, drawn by the Spirit, through the word, saw with the eyes of faith what the Lord was teaching concerning themselves. They were no longer offended. They confessed the truth of it and repented. They repented in deep humility before God and before the church. And others saw the work of the Holy Spirit in them. They saw the life of Christ in them. So to be obedient to the faith is first of all, to stop resisting the message that Christ speaks to us, to stop setting ourselves up in pride over against that message that shows the darkness of our own sinfulness and the seriousness of our sin against God. Because only when we see the need for a Savior will we see the wonder of what God has done in uniting us to Christ by faith. But that also means, as I implied, that we repent. For the word of God to us is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That also belongs to the obedience of the, to the faith, submitting ourselves to the word of God. None of us, by nature, likes to admit that we were wrong. But when we see the sinfulness of our sin and the great offense against God that we have committed against that perfectly righteous and good and loving God who created us for his glory, to deny our guilt is to perish in unbelief. Those who come under the power of the gospel are brought to true conversion. And true conversion, as our Heidelberg Catechism points out, is daily repentance. It's daily repentance in recognition of the daily battle of faith in which we are engaged 
against our sinful nature, as well as, as against Satan and his hosts and the evil world that serves him. Daily repentance is the continual putting off of the old man and putting on of the new. And it's worth hearing again how the Catechism explains those concepts in Lord's Day 33. Question 89, what is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. And more and more to hate and to flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And that latter brings to expression the wonder of obedience to the faith coming to expression in joyful thankfulness to the God of our salvation. Obedience to the faith involves living according to the will of God in all good works. That's the fruit of our union to Christ by faith. That's the necessary fruit, apart from which a claim of being Christian is exposed as self-deception. For Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. But that obedience to the faith, while an urgent necessity, is also a blessed privilege. That privilege is ours who belong to Christ. You understand that when we are organically united to Christ by faith, we are as much one with him as our heads are to our bodies. His life is ours. He directs us by his Holy Spirit. And this is the way in which he is pleased to make his word increase to use the language of the text, this is the way in which God is pleased to add to his church such as should be saved. The power of the gospel not only works in the hearts and minds of his people chosen in Christ, but they hear his voice and follow him, even as he had said in John 10, verse 27. The power That's the power of the word of God, worked by the Holy Spirit. And the word of God sounds forth in our lives, even as it did in the Christians in Thessalonica. Paul would write of them in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. You realize that 
when Scripture reveals this wonder work of God's grace as the work of the Holy Spirit, we must count it all joy to serve our Lord Jesus. When we know the wonder of how he has saved us, and from what? Our mouths shall show forth his praise. Which is to say, we shall not only confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus, but we shall adorn that confession with the lives of thankfulness that seek not only to serve him, but the neighbor. Do you recognize this as the privileged place that is yours? There have always been those, even in the church, who have not been obedient to the faith. There have always been those who, as those priests, were hardened by the word, That is, as the priests, the wayward priests in the Old Testament and early New Testament, hardened by the word, lived in the church as blasphemers of God, drunkards, self-centered gluttons of pleasure, those who lived in debauchery, those whose bitter and quarrelsome natures are exposed by Christ as fruits of a hard heart. Far from obedient to the faith, they've rejected the faith and therefore do not know the privilege of those who who have been redeemed and brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. They're used by Satan to leave a testimony with the ungodly that the church is no different from the world and that the word preached has no power. It's foolishness. You understand that such could never be the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So what power was seen when the word preached by the apostles was applied by the Holy Spirit in such a way that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, that sets forth a radical change worked by the power of the gospel in the hearts of God's people, even to those who had been so resistant to the teachings of Jesus. And when we have come under the power of that gospel, that gospel being applied to our hearts by the Spirit of Christ, the life that is ours in Christ Jesus is a life that affects every aspect of our existence, that magnifies the grace, amazing grace, of him who has saved us. The Lord continues to build his church, evident also here. Let's praise him by our obedience to the faith. Amen.
Gracious Father, we thank Thee that this evening we could hear the confessions of faith of Kylie and James and be reminded of the wonderwork of Thy grace in our midst and in our own lives. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that our confessions might be adorned by obedience to the faith, to thy name's honor and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. 